0: Hey, everybody! It is Yasser! I forgot my line. I'm just kidding. It's (laughs) Isaiah! Uh, We are from my brother Sneaker, and we've got a little announcement. We are teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you three exclusive uh, episodes. Uh, Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moment from a ton of podcasts and creates playlist clips from a bunch of shows, and you can just search and try them out and find anything that you love. For instance... Oh, yeah. There's a playlist on there uh, called Slice of Life, which is all about, like, crazy, incredible things that happen to everyday people. Like, I just learned this, bro. I just learned some people pay their bills on time, dog. Oh, is that a thing? Dog, people will have a bill due date, and they will pay that bill before then. That's crazy to me. Before then. You know what else is crazy? What? Spoke also has a, a lot of fun, exclusive content from Feral Audio. Yeah. Um... It's just, you know, like our tournament episodes are going to be, Oh like, yeah. you know, there's going to be stuff like Sleep With Me, a lot of our, our other great shows here at Farrell. You don't want to miss it. Yep. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of My Brother's Sneakers' exclusive Spoke episodes at hearspoke.com slash mybrotherssneakers. MBS, MBS. Model boys, cute boys, round butt boys all day.
1: Guys, finding quality denim jeans is tough. And to find a good pair without breaking the bank is just uh, almost impossible. But at Distilled, spelled D-S-T-L-D, you get like brand top quality jeans at a price that won't break your bank. And I know I said break the bank, but I like saying break the bank. And I'll say it again. Break the bank. But just go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com right now and use the promo code FERAL and check out and get it. I 20% discount on your first pair. And these are great jeans. I love them. I wear them all the time. Heck, I sleep in them. Distilled jeans. They're the best jean you're ever going to wear. In fact, I shower in them. Distilled jeans. D-S-T-L-D. They're good quality, super duper denim. And, you know, it's not going to cost you like $200 or $100. Go to distilled.com. D-S-T-L-D.com. Do it. Get some jeans. Look cool. Audio. Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. And It's good to be back. I haven't done this podcast in a couple years. I took a break, uh, but people kept listening to it. And I think the audience has grown in my absence. Uh, So I felt compelled to come back. And uh, part of the reason I felt compelled to come back was that Trump got elected. And I was losing sleep, and I was anxious. And uh, I I won't lie to you, uh, the morning after he got elected, I, I, my first thought was uh, of my wife and child hovering on the living room floor (laughs) as the missiles came. Now, I know I I tend to think of the worst case scenarios always. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But I decided to come back and focus on what is going on politically in this country. Uh, That's why my today's guest is James S. Henry. He wrote this great article Uh, about the curiosities of who Trump is uh, connected with and his possible Russian connections. It's in the American Interest uh, magazine, and it's a great article, huge, expansive piece about all these possible connections of Donald Trump has with the Russians. And uh, it's really great. I won't try to explain it any further because I'm not going to do half as good as a job (laughs) As uh, Mr. Henry, but it's uh, phenomenal, and uh, he's—I loved the article so much. I wrote to him on Twitter and asked if he'd be on the podcast, and he did say yes. So this is the first episode of me exploring uh, the various worlds of Donald Trump, and you know what we can do to be aware and stay diligent and keep ourselves and our country, you know, headed in a in a good direction. Um, and in the coming weeks, I, uh, I will be speaking with, um, a lot of activists like Mark Rudd, who was a member of the Weather Underground and Paul Krasner, who was a a journalist and a writer and an activist within the sixties to get their perspectives on, you know, they've seen a great deal of this. They've been active. They went, they lived through Vietnam and Nixon. And so to get those perspectives and... I think will be really interesting of how well, this all relates to today and uh, what we can do. Uh, so I'm really excited and sort of invigorated to and re-energized to uh, do the show again. Um, I I really like I stopped doing it because I started working a lot and uh, had a baby. And if you're working a lot and having a baby... Uh, the one thing you're not doing is sleeping. So when you're, you don't have time for podcasting because you're like, I could spend that hour sleeping. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, uh, I- I'm really excited to be back. Uh, and I hope that you share this podcast, uh, and write to me at conversations with Dwyer at, uh, Gmail. Or you can go to my website and message me to, th- uh, themattdwyer.com. And, uh, Tell me what you think. I, You know, some of you might send me hate mail. I've noticed uh, Trump followers uh, like to attack people on the interwebs, um, which is cool. You know, come attack me on, on the interwebs. It's only going to help me get more followers. <laughs> you know, get give me some free press. Get me, you know, have me report you to the FBI and then I can, you know, take that to the L.A. Weekly and then I become like a folk hero or something. Uh, so that's my plan be a folk hero, uh, due to somebody threatening my life. And, you know, you, me being threatened is nothing new. I've been, it's been happening since I was a kid. So, you know, it started with my father and then spread out through the entire neighborhood. And then before we knew it, and you, you know, the teacher and the janitor were threatening me. Anyway, well, way off on a tangent there. Um, I guess I'm just excited to be back. And, uh, and I, I think this is a great episode. Um, to start it off with Um, mr james s henry was incredible and uh very it just you know it's one of those conversations i've spoken with some highly intelligent people on this show and my other show Afterbirth, on feral audio just check that out um but once in a while you talk to a guy and or a woman and you go i'm way in over my head like (laughs) there is a this guy is uh one of them super smart people and i'm i'm just a moderate dummy but regardless anyway this is a great episode enjoy it and here we go Post the election, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist sort of guy at all. I'm, I like to facts, and but the entire time I've been, it's hard to not have the feeling that there's something at play here that we're fully not seeing.
2: <laughs> yeah. does,
1: does that sound crazy to you?
2: Well, I think what we need to do is, you know, I'm sort of, sort of, sort of surprised that the uh, mainstream media didn't do this. They, with all the resources they have. Um, You know, I'm an investigative economist. I've written a lot about flight capital um, and uh, tax havens and, uh, you know, been doing this for a while. Uh, But, uh, you know, I don't think you need to uh, necessarily uh, be a conspiracy theorist to see, you know, that there's extraordinary private relationships that uh, Trump has cultivated with Russians uh, and with uh, former member former Soviet Union uh, uh, elements uh, for, you know, a very long time. So it's uh, it's kind of putting the overall network together and saying, hey, what does this uh, uh, really mean? And, you know, what, what should we say about it? I think we've raised a lot of issues, at least in our uh, effort. If you draw the sort of the network graph of uh, his relationships with, you know, outright mobsters as well as, uh, kleptocrats, <laughs> and you relate this back to the fundamental question of, you know, why does Trump exist? Why does Putin exist in the first place? Um, you know, that's a in, kind of an important historical issue, and uh, you know, I relate it uh, very much to what happened to Russia during the 1990s, when it was basically a kind of social collapse. Um, and rather than have us come in and sort of implement successful reform, establish the rule of law in a reasonably democratic society with a, you know, comfortable middle class, which is what we claim to believe in, uh, you know, kind of a, a liberal, the basis for a kind of liberal democratic capitalist society. You know, we essentially signed off on, and indeed I think financed, the transfer of wealth and power to a tiny group of people, um, and that set up the stage for not only um, you know the rise of a counter-revolution under Putin, uh, but also an enormous outflow of capital from Russia. Uh, you know, it's in the form of first of all transfer wealth to a tiny group of oligarchs, uh, and secondly, just a subsequent kind of. You know, many ordinary Russian businessmen concluding that they couldn't count on the rule of law in Russia. So Russia is now sitting on at least one point three trillion of offshore flight wealth, uh, which is makes it number two in the world in terms of uh, countries with offshore wealth in the developing world.
1: Uh, Who's number one?
2: China. China's uh, had an enormous amount of outflow. Of uh, capital flight from, uh, especially in the last two years, there's more than a uh, trillion dollars that's flown out of China, and I think China's, you know, people are beginning to wake up to the fact that uh, China's development strategy has been based heavily on foreign, on basically on domestic uh, debt. And uh, if you fly over the <laughs> China today, you see all these large areas of uh, unoccupied condos. <laughs> Uh, that uh, just staggering, Uh, you know, a lot of money, just just like uh, if you've seen the big short, the film about the 2008 financial crisis and all those empty condominiums in Miami, well, they're nothing compared to the empty uh, real estate buildings sitting around in China. So, you know, there's been a lot of, um, I would say book growth or pseudo growth in the Chinese economy and their debt ratio is now north of 250% of GDP. Uh, This is just clearly not sustainable. Um, And so that explains why, you know, Bitcoin has been soaring in value and uh, the Chinese have been cracking down on, you know, launching more uh, restrictions on foreign exchange. Uh, A lot of companies in China have been making uh, acquisitions. Anyway, that's a whole separate topic. But I think uh, the big picture is that when we were, uh, you know, I sort of backed into this story about Trump by virtue of the, of the work that I've done for the Tax Justice Network on offshore havens and trying to measure the volume of wealth that's that goes offshore. We had a 2012 paper that's been widely cited as the leading source of that. It's called The Off- Price of Offshore Revisited, and it's available on the web for download. Um, and then we did another update last year about the volume of wealth flowing out of developing countries. Um, so that's kind of the background for the work I did on, on Donald Trump. And do you- But essentially, the point about him is that he he really got to a stage in the two after 2000 when, you know, he literally had had six bankruptcies in the 1990s, plus a lot of other failed projects that just never got that far uh, and he was unfinanceable. So the only way that he could have been financed uh, in the, after 2000 or so, uh, was to rely on, you know, sort of uh, shady money coming out of places like Russia the former Soviet Union states like Kazakhstan. Um, And this was another connection that surprisingly the the mainstream media just kind of missed. I mean, the basic question of how Trump was able to continue financing his operations given his terrible track record. Yeah. So uh
1: <laughs> I've read a number of opinion pieces that speculate that he's either broke or severely in debt and that's why he's constantly pulling these sort of they're like if he's a billionaire he wouldn't need to do the, his fraudulent university <laughs> to bilk people out of money he, that he's just like constantly been in this trying to keep up game. Uh, I
2: well, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of my friend David K. Johnson has written a lot about his tax dodging schemes and, you know, his, uh, ins- his fire insurance that he recovered some $27 million from uh, a fire at the Mar-a-Lago. Um, you know, there's a, this, this is kind of a classic case of overdetermination. You have different theories. Um, but without auditing him i mean without having even his tax returns uh to look at uh we have a, a small sample of information about him it's really very hard to say and he has such a far-flung uh set of deal-making going on uh all over the planet that but it, you know it does basically it raises the question of why someone who is you know if they're really that successful in real estate they would be tinkering around with, uh, you know, uh, TV programs and brand licensing deals of all kinds, and their, you know, their own clothing line and, uh, you know, the, uh, the Trump University scam. Uh, so, I mean, I think uh, the evidence was just kind of sitting there that I pulled together this article I think anybody else could have done it. It took a lot of digging on our part. Um, and uh, what we've come up with, I think, is a pretty good uh, kind of rogues gallery. Uh, That shows that Trump was not very discriminating in the kind of people he did business with, at the very least.
1: I mean, it's kind of jaw dropping just the the level of well, Russian mobsters. I mean, he was on stage with one New Year's Eve uh, uh, by the, the No Socks Joey No Socks, which is almost like a cartoon name for for Christ's sake. Yeah,
2: I mean, that's you know the kind of level of either he has absolutely. You know no sensibilities about this, or I believe that he he's sort of he has a history of uh, coverting with these folks, and they don't really uh you know he doesn't view them as uh, as problematic at all um and so you know in the nineteen sixties and seventies we were concerned that Richard Nixon maybe had uh you know some odd dealings with uh various kinds of Connected people, and but it was on a wholly different scale, is what we're talking about here. I mean, this is just out front and blatant. And uh, you know, I mean, it, it may well not have much. Uh, oddly enough, it may not necessarily mean that he can't get anything done in the White House, or that he will be a terrible president. I mean, maybe it will be uh, an advantage to have all these weird connections. But at least we'll figure out whether <laughs> these connections are useful or not.
0: Uh, do you
1: think that eventually this, I mean, his denial of the, our intelligence communities and his constant buddying up to Putin and Assange, I mean, it, that seems like it's inevitable that the truth of these situations are going to come out, uh, correct?
2: <laughs> well, we hope so. I mean, the, the, the intelligence agencies are in this dilemma. You know, they've got to go to work for this guy, uh, many of their careers are on the line uh you know uh, on the other hand uh i mean I, he's been dissing the intelligence agencies as if in advance he anticipates that they have some information about him and and his associates that may come out and he wants to discredit them in advance i mean why would he cro- uh, whatever you think of julian assange and he's had a mixed track record at best um you know this is not the time to cozy up to him and preference to you know, 17 intelligence agencies that are telling you, "Yeah, indeed, the Russians uh, were behind this." I mean, Assange wouldn't necessarily even know if it was a state actor that was providing him with information, given all of the surrogates that could stand in the middle. Um, but to take Assange's word over all these people, that you know, we we <laughs> we may not like everything they do, but at the end of the day, we've got to trust them for national security. So. Um, I think it's just incredible, and I've got to believe that one possibility is that they actually were monitoring uh, his connections and, con- and his, some of his back channels that apparently he was maintaining uh, to Russia during this period. I mean, there are all these weird transmissions from Trump Tower to the Alpha Bank, there's Manafort's communications. They admitted that they were in touch with uh, with uh, the Russians during this uh, campaign, Um you know, and it may be that our own intelligence operations were monitoring some of that and have found some, you know, embarrassing stuff. So maybe he's trying to preempt that. Uh, that's the only interpretation I can I can give short of, you know, just uh, his own amateur behavior in this area. Um, but, uh, you know, to give them the benefit of the doubt, you know, let's say that this was uh, – standard behavior in the industry that he was in, that real estate people, in order to do businesses, business, uh, big projects around the world, they had to cultivate, you know, all kinds of different connections, and not every one of them was going to be clean. You know, New York is certainly not devoid of uh, of organized crime. (laughs) To get anything built in in New York is a, you know, probably a lot, requires a lot of cutting corners, uh, if that's the business that you've chosen to be in. But the question is whether that kind of behavior has, uh, you know, is kind of the, the, the appropriate background for somebody who's going to be president of the United States. Um, you know, does it at the very least sort of desensitize you to, you know, the? I mean, are you a good role model for all the young kids in the world? Uh, you know, who are going to be looking, looking, looking at uh, looking at what you do. Um, and that's the kind of thing that presidents have often uh, probably engaged in, but they've engaged in it indirectly. They've had the good taste to, you know, to get uh, someone else involved in doing their dirty business. So to be that um, direct about engagement with these folks, I think, is, a, is pretty unprecedented. Um, you know, beyond which there is the conspiratorial view that, you know, he's really – you know sort of uh, wholly owned subsidiary um, I don't believe that I think that it's uh it's more likely that he found it convenient for his own self interest to do business with these people but you know his business practices that may have been appropriate in the real estate industry uh, uh maybe not even appropriate there uh, <laughs> but uh but uh you know certainly not appropriate for the president of the united states
1: do you do you believe because gentlemen like Robert Reich and various other people think that this is a push towards us becoming an authoritarian state. And, I mean, if you look at it in... I mean, even you spoke of how Putin came to power. And Do you think that that's where we're being pushed? And maybe that is, as you spoke of earlier, corporations might even be pushing for, for that? Is that... Seem like anything that makes sense to you?
2: Um, I don't really believe that. I think that at the end of the day, U.S. companies don't really want to live in, a, in an authoritarian state where there's no rule of law. I mean, look at what happens to Russian companies or Chinese companies when you do that. You're hostage to, you know, uh, the uh, societies where there's, uh, you know, uh, political leaders get to decide who's going to own what. And that's why there is all this flight capital from kleptocracies, because they don't have the rule of law, because there, there aren't independent courts you can go to and rely on. So I think even on pure economic interest, it's not in the interests of the capitalist class of the United States to have some sort of authoritarian regime. We've seen authoritarian regimes rise and fall all over the planet. They're not the most sustainable system. Um, what happens to work is something that, you know, we've tried and true. I mean, we've, uh, you know, it's good old-fashioned middle-class democracy. Now we've we've had a hard time of it lately because of all the rising inequality, and the tendency on the part of uh, the big companies to think they're profitable or better off, uh, more profitable, better off with less regulation. You know, so they want to strip mine the state. I think in the long run, a more balanced perspective would say, you know, there's not many successful, sustainable examples uh, of capitalist systems that have thrived and prospered in these kinds of authoritarian regimes, and we ought to be aware of that. Um, that being the case, I mean, there is this tendency across, the, you know, not just the United States, but some European countries as well. I mean, we've seen countries like Ho- uh, Hungary, uh, you know, the, uh, the in NATO, the uh, Erdogan government in Turkey, uh, there's a you know fairly, fairly strong right wing movement, anti EU movement in France at the moment in Italy, so there's definitely a um, you know the wind blowing from the right. Uh, but I think what, what ordinary Americans really want is a more prosperous economy and a democratic society, and they they will wake up if they understand all this stuff. Um, to some extent, this is really the fault. I would say of the democratic party and of the, uh, the liberal press, they haven't paid enough attention to these issues and they nominated a candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton, who was, you know, pretty easy to typecast as a, you know, as herself being, uh, somewhat, uh, connected <laughs> with, with, uh, wall street, you know, and with, uh, uh, special interests that she favored over time. Not, not exactly a, a lifelong advocate for, you know, ordinary working people. I think mean, Bernie Sanders uh, made a good run and made a lot of good points. Um, but uh, you know, at the end. I think the fact that we tried to run somebody against uh, Trump, who was basically susceptible to the, uh, to you know, a lot of these same criticisms, uh, made. <laughs> Uh, made all of these people who care about a liberal society much more vulnerable than we needed to be. So we'll spend a lot of time digging our our way out of this, but I do think that even in the Republican Party, you're going to see opposition to the the sort of turning a blind eye to corruption and to, you know, uh, opposition to assaulting our intelligence agencies and, you know, basically uh, trying to get us back on balance.
1: Do you think this will... Uh, so send the send the Democrats more to the left, or do you think they'll, uh, you know, be more centered around like a Bernie Sanders message in the next run, or do you think they might? I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine them going more to the right.
2: Well, I think it's it's going to be uh, very important for them to do well uh, in de- on playing defense during this period. This is a time for them to demonstrate their. Uh, you know, ability to uh, stand up for the many of the traditional the best best policies that Democrats ever invented things like Medicare that actually work uh you know are going to come under assault so, one thing Trump does I don't think Trump necessarily cares enough about all these issues that the Republicans are going to open the door to but you know in fact the, uh, they're going to you know the, a lot of the uh, special uh uh Republican you know, a lot of the special interests in the Republican Party are going to come out of the woodwork here and, and try to, get, you know, ban regulation through fields or uh, try to, um, you know, privatize Social Security. All these extreme things that they've had on their plate for on their agenda for decades and they've never gotten uh, enough political power to pass are now, you know, possible because you have a Republican president in office at the same time you have the Congress under Republican control. So. Um, you know, but I uh, there's a real risk that some of these extreme, uh, measures may be passed and Ob- Obamacare are coming up first, but, uh, you know, the Republicans now have the total responsibility. They can't duck anymore. <laughs> They're going to have to come up with, uh, uh, you know, some kind of healthcare program that makes sense. That's first and foremost. Um. You know, an Obamacare for all of its war- warts is working, has put a lot of people on uh, back under care. Nobody wants to go back to a system where you have, uh, you know, people can't uh, with pre-existing conditions can't find care, that kind of thing. So, I think this, this is really, uh, you know, the Democrats uh, may end up uh, back in a uh, uh, in a Bernie Sanders position. I think that position was. Um, Pretty strong, but Bernie's going to be too old to run. so the question is who will we actually find to carry the torch? And I think that's a real, uh, a real problem for the Democrats. The, the bench is kind of empty. Um, and as we've seen in the case of Trump, you know the, a leadership really matters. I mean having some one person uh, you know to, to, to actually uh, be able to carry the, the, the banner and uh, for people to, to rally around and feel good about Um, Well, that was Obama's story, wasn't it? Um, But, uh, you know, from a policy standpoint, I think the Democrats, uh, you know, I mean, on climate change, on Obamacare, on health care, on defending these social programs, uh, they don't really need to be left wing. (laughs) They just need to be centrist. (laughs) I'd like I'd like it if they were able to hold the center. That would be terrific. You know. Uh not repealing the right to for women to have uh control of their own bodies. I mean that would be <laughs> that would be pro- that would be progress for me. I'm a I'm a reasonably conservative guy when it comes to, you know, economic policies. Uh but I, I do think when it comes to the constitution and women's rights and, you know, these some of the proposals of Republicans. Well, so, I mean I think they'll just hang themselves. Uh
1: it, it does seem like they're setting themselves up for some great backlash because I feel like Trump has promised a lot of these jobs that we all know cannot come back. And even if they were here, they would have been automated. And I think in, when people aren't working in those in the Rust Belt, they're going to get really pissed off.
2: Well, you know what can't be automated is installing solar uh, on every rooftop in Florida. Um you know right now, I mean, there is an awful lot of opportunity, which you know there there you know the whole uh the opportunity to uh go much faster on uh reducing fossil fuels i think was a great job creator potentially, but Trump has turned his back on it so you 're right there's all these contradictions in the- in the trump economic plan he wants to cut taxes, but he wants to balance the budget, but he wants to have a, a positive trade balance. Uh, He wants to have a trade war with China and put tariffs back on. He wants to put up walls with our, you know, closest uh, neighbors. This is, it it just, after a while, it just doesn't add up. Um, I mean, I think the, uh, the, you know, he's going to be stimulating fossil fuel production with uh, pipelines, but at the same time, he wants to preserve the coal industry. Uh, You know, even though the main enemy of coal is uh, liquefied natural gas, which is just more competitive. He's talked about restoring nuclear power plants, but nuclear power plants are (laughs) non-economic. I just, even apart from their safety issues, they just, uh, you know, can't compete. Uh, So there's all these contradictions in his economic plan. And I think there as well, you're going to see, you know, he wants to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure. But what exactly does he mean by that? Um, we've had these outrageous examples of privatization programs in the UK where they had something called PFI program, uh, Private Finance Initiative, which was about infrastructure. They ended up selling their schools and hospitals to the private sector and then discovering that they were actually being charged a lot more for the services because it was kind of a sale-leaseback deal. And uh, furthermore, many of the companies that <laughs> took over the infrastructure uh, put their operating headquarters offshore, so they weren't even paying taxes. So th- if that's the kind of road that Trump has in mind, I mean, you know, <laughs> we'll have this initial kind of uh, sugar uh, <laughs> sugar high, and then, you know, it'll turn out to be a disaster.
1: How long do you think that disaster could take to happen? Is that if something that can be predicted?
2: You know, Trump inherits a very good economy, unlike Obama, who inherited you know nine or ten percent unemployment in January two thousand nine. Trump is going to come in with uh, you know unemployment at five or six percent. Some states it's much lower. Uh, he, you know, there's a real risk that if he sets off a short-term investment boom, we're going to have interest rates rising dramatically. Um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of slack in the economy right now for him to exploit. And, uh, you know, the the investment idea is not crazy. I think that that will, uh, you know, there is a lot of need for public infrastructure investment. But there's a risk that he's going to warp it toward this privatization idea. It's uh, going to be very profitable for a lot of companies, but not very profitable for the U.S. Uh, uh, as a whole. So... You know, it'll take uh, maybe two years of <laughs> to get over this this initial. I think this uh, this initial blush of being uh, sort of uh, delighted that some people are quite delighted with having you know gotten rid of uh, Hillary and company. Uh, but I think uh, you know by two thousand by the next congressional election, we'll have some evidence in that we can use to to sort of turn this around.
1: Do you think, because I think of my hometown Chicago, who did a uh, daily, second daily, did a lot of privatization of things like, you know, the parking meters and stuff. And it seemed like a fast, you know, it's like a guy who needs drinking money, so he sells his record collection. <laughs> and then but he can't enjoy yeah. any music while he drinks. I don't know if that's a good metaphor. But my point is, it's a short term cash in. And now Chicago is hugely in debt. And it's like, well, you're missing that millions of dollars a year you could be getting from.
2: Do you exactly, see, and do you see that? Well, you know who, who you know who actually invented this kind of pr- private finance initiative stuff uh, for infrastructure was uh, Mussolini. There's a great <laughs> article, <laughs> great article in the uh, that I found in the February 1936 edition of the magazine uh, Foreign Affairs, which a cover story which has 12 years of fascist finance. And it's a fascinating article, uh, written by this Italian economist at the time who's saying, you know, there's a mystery here. I mean, Mussolini's public debt has not expanded and yet he's been doing all this spending. How did he pull this off? Well, he did it by, you know, privatizing everything and getting the the public sector, uh, you know, sold off roads and, and, you know, schools and hospitals and, uh, bridges to, uh, um, you know, to private companies. And then, of course, they made up the money by leasing them back to the public sector, but it was all off the books financing. So none of it showed up in the public debt. Um, you know, that's uh, that's exactly what happened in Chicago. It's happened in New York. Other uh, places that have been privatizing like crazy and discovered that this is sort of phony bookkeeping because it comes back to bite you if the interest rates you're paying uh, on this – on on the leases and, uh, you know, the initial uh, deal sounds pretty good. You get a new school, uh, and then you discover, well, who's going to maintain the school? So, you know, and and how much are we actually paying for it? So unless all that is carefully negotiated, uh, it can end up to be a disaster.
1: Do you look at the people he's proposing for his cabinet, and uh, does that strike you with – fear at all (laughs) for economically and otherwise
2: well i'm delighted as a journalist and i'm not i'm not aligned with any political party i'm just i just i love whatever you know so this wonderful private magazine and the uk is my my model they take on whatever administration comes to power is always going to have you know uh wonderful targets and uh Trump has just provided us with some wonderful targets to to, uh, to take a look at and, and to know more about. I mean, Tillerson, as uh, Secretary of, of uh, State, you know, there's a guy with, who's been running Exxon all over the planet um, since, uh, well, he's been there a very long time professionally, uh, but I think he's CEO since 2011. You know, Exxon has uh, 20 companies offshore in the Bahamas, uh, including one that he did his deals with Russia through. I'm just dying to know what those companies have been doing, how much profit, um, Exxon has parked there. Did Tillerson know about all that? Um, you know, they have a big operation in Angola. Uh, I have people in Angola telling me they paid commissions, uh, through these companies. So this is just one example. I mean, you know, we point somebody who's coming out of business with a global reach uh like that, you're bound to have skeletons in the closet. Um you know not to say that the Exxon and necessarily the only oil company in the world that, you know, is engaged in uh commission paying. But uh you know, certainly we've now again we've chosen somebody to come out of the business world with all of its uh you know specific very specific behavior. Uh, and put them in public office. The, the two don't necessarily fit very well. They, historically, they've never fit very well. Uh, Any time we've had business executives in a higher office, there have always been these conflict of interest issues that come up.
1: Do you th- do you think uh, Tillerson gets, he will get uh, confirmed? Do you, do you do you think there's anybody that in the cabinet in general that's going to be fought hard not to get the seat?
2: It's going to be really hard for, uh, you know, any of these nominees to uh, to avoid uh, tough questioning. But whether or not there's alternatives being proposed, I, you know, I, I don't see that right now unless we find some. You know, the, the, probably the worst nominee from that standpoint is the uh, attorney general nomination, Sessions. He has some pretty ugly uh, skeleton in his closet with respect to his stand on race in america and uh you know these were sufficient to prevent him from being confirmed before so now for an, even for a lower post you know for the for a judgeship so I, I think it may be uh that would be one to watch he's already stimulated a lot of opposition from the uh from the law schools more oh, i think uh Something like 1,100 professors at 170 law firms, just science law, law schools around the country uh, just signed a petition saying that he was unfit to be attorney general. Uh, So, you know, if the if the opposition can can focus on some of these uh, glaring, inappropriate uh, nominations, uh, as opposed to having a scattershot approach, I think that, you know, this would be a. you know, it would be a po- possible to have some improvement. But you know, I'm not optimistic that we're gonna be able to uh, prevent this uh in the initial round in the initial round of nominations. It's gonna be a, you know, if if the Reagan administration is any um sort of precedent, most of his nominations uh sailed through and you know, we had to wait for them to become uh to make mistakes in order to be removed.
1: Uh I mean, it, it seems. It seems as if Trump is going to make a mistake pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, i think a lot of us are praying for it. Even the atheists are praying.
2: <laughs> well, I'm not praying for a enough about the country. I'd love to see the guy actually be turn out to you know to have a new incarnation. I mean, you know, from one standpoint, it's real. Uh, the U.S. has a lot to gain by cooperating with Mexico, rather than trashing them. Immigrants are great; they're actually productive members of society, and they pay for themselves. Uh, we actually need a progressive tax code, uh, you know, because it's not right for major companies to be paying, like Apple and Google, to be paying, you know, nothing on their offshore profits, uh, while the rest of us are are paying. Uh, unavoidable taxes and sales taxes and property taxes and everything else. This is um, this is a kind of uh, road to Damascus experience that you'd like President Trump to <laughs> to uh, to have. But, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not a forecaster, but I, based on what I've written about in this article, if I had to forecast, uh, based on, you know, as Cervantes says of the opening quote in the article is, uh, tell me who you walk with and I'll tell you who you are. And the people that he has walked with, uh, you know, have been pretty dodgy.
1: Why do you think the mainstream media is not attacking this as they, as they should be?
2: Well, I think, they, you know, uh, there's a lot of reasons there. I mean, it's it's hard to, you know, just focus on one. Um, there has been some good reporting by senior experienced journalists at one end of the spectrum. I think David K. Johnson has done a lot of really hard-hitting reporting about Donald Trump for a lot of years. Um, the best reporting, uh, Kurt Eichenwald at Newsweek did some interesting work. Um, You know, there are examples of where uh, good critical reporting occurred. But on the whole, I think Trump was very successful being able to change the topic every day. He would, you know, somebody would, he would tweet something or he would have some video that was put out. I think that the Democrats also sort of played into this by thinking that they could wound him uh, permanently with, with some of the sexist and racist comments that he was making. And they ignored the fact that, yeah, a lot of his supporters didn't go for that, and they w- were upset by it. But from their standpoint, the most important issues were, you know, the class war, the fact that America's, their perceived position in the United States was declining. And so you got a lot of white males, for example, who are just not going to vote for Hillary um, because they'd lost confidence in, in that uh, kind of neoliberal formula. So, um But I think the media is also uh, under a lot of pressure to, you know, economically, uh, they're not the same media you had in the 60s, where you have the New York Times and the Post and the Journal basically being able to hold court and, you know, have a lot of influence politically. They've been, you know, there's just now an enormous daily uh, froth of infotainment and, you know, websites of all kinds. Uh so it's very hard to cut through and focus. And it's hard for these established media not to be caught up in the com- competitive rush uh to try to, to chase the latest uh headlines. So I think that's part of it. And then the fourth thing I think would be, you know, journalism needs uh lots of young people who are really motivated, but it also needs um You know, some experienced folks and people who know about tax havens and economics uh, and the law. And these are, you know, subject matters that it takes some time to an expertise to try to to acquire. Um, So we have a lot of very bright young people who don't know anything uh, in journalism and they're not really, uh, you know, they're not they're, they're they're thrown into the lion's pit and expected to cover the presidential race. And, you know, they cover it the only way they can, which is to write about the latest daily, you know, uh, faux pas by Trump. So I think, you know, those are some reasons. I, I wish they were – I think having a a, a, very in, a a very critical independent media is an essential aspect of democracy. And I, I'm afraid, you know, our fourth estate is not uh, – is not doing uh, its job.
1: Do you think that uh, they will improve in the – because I feel like everybody got a bit of a rattle when Trump won, and I feel like – I do think some of the media did get lazy and they covered – I mean, I feel like they should have been hounding him from the get-go, and he clearly was just good for ratings, as CBS said.
2: Well, the most energized reporters were people, you know, like Alex Jones. I mean, he uh, developed an enormous following on his radio program, uh, you know, based on uh, some of his views are just outlandish. And uh, but he he was energized. They have, you know a lot of uh, uh, their reporters were, you know, sort of you could feel the passion that they were feeling for Trump and for being able to overthrow the establishment. So the sense of overthrowing the establishment, including the mainstream press, you know, is kind of an essential thing that was present for the Sanders campaign, but then it kind of went out, went away. So there are various phases in this. I'd say, you know, if somehow Bernie had been the nominee, we might have had a different outcome, uh, and the press might've had a, uh, you know, I've so taken a, a closer look at Trump during that period because like Ber- Bernie just – he had vulnerabilities of his own, but nothing like, uh, like the steady stream of things that were directed at Hillary. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's second-guessing now, so we have to look forward. I think that the main, main thing we have to do now is to uh, begin to invest in independent journalism again and to develop some institutions that uh, – you know and some um, capabilities beyond just the traditional outlets for mainstream media um, you know so some of us are working on that project I think mentoring young people about how to how to do investigative journalism is a really important calling, and I'm involved in some of that um, I think uh you know there's there's no one. Magic bullet for this, but yeah, if, if you don't feel motivated now <laughs> to, uh, you never will be this is <laughs> this is a, the opposite of a peak experience
1: How does one for those who may not know, how does one invest in in, in, in independent journalism? what can they do and who what can they read?
2: Well, I think um, there are uh, efforts by i think one specific thing david K Johnson is starting a new effort to sort of have a Trump watch and he's gathering up a bunch of uh, very talented journalists around the country and uh, you can look at his uh, Twitter feed. Uh, He's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, former New York Times columnist who's an expert on taxes and he wrote a best-selling book about uh, Donald Trump, Um, you know, that's one approach. There are other institutions like the Center for Investigative Journalism, you know, set up for public integrity, a number of nonprofit organizations that are sponsoring journalism or are, you know, directly involved in, uh, uh, you know, producing journalism themselves, producing reporting themselves. Um, so there's it's never been easier to kind of donate to uh, crowdfund <laughs> investigative journalists who have specific projects in mind. And that's another whole r- route to take. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, I think there's a good argument just for supporting the traditional media. I mean, if you don't have a subscription, you may not agree with The Wall Street Journal or The New York Times uh, or The Washington Post. But if you don't subscribe to them, uh, you've got to imagine a world in which they they don't exist anymore. And that would be, by every standard, far worse. Much, and there's also great independent media around the country. The L.A. Times, uh, you know, just the uh, – Is searched them out. The Nation magazine is a is a good outlet. You may not agree with these outlets, but you've got again. You've got to admit that if they didn't exist, you'd have a considerably worse situation.
1: To to go back to your article, there was two questions I want to ask. Is one if there was because you cover a lot of ground and a lot of connections that Trump could have with Russia. Was there anyone that was more? A bit more alarming than any of the others that you were sort of shocked by. Well,
2: there's one name that came through uh, repeatedly in many of the stories I was doing. This is this fellow who's the so-called boss of bosses in Moscow. He's the guy I was most curious about knowing more about. Uh, You know, some people have said he's a KGB front, uh, but uh, you know that name uh, in particular was recurrent enough throughout. Uh, you know, I took a look at five or six different cases uh, where the people involved had more or less uh, some connection with him. So that was, I thought peculiar enough to warrant uh, further uh, study and investigation and, you know, to see, uh, you know, to, to see if there's anything to the notion that this was more than just a, a you know, a, a random amount of business deals that uh, Trump was getting involved with. But, uh, You know, there's more to know. I mean, there are more fundamental things that should be asked here, and I think uh, there are a number of agencies that could appropriately ask the question, but I hope that they uh, are are inclined to do so. You know, one basic question is we saw in Mitt Romney's case that he had Swiss bank accounts. Well, if Mitt Romney, uh, who was – you know, a venture capitalist in Boston, but a relatively straight guy. I think most people agree. If he and his wife had Swiss bank accounts, this begs the question, did Donald have Swiss bank accounts and, uh, or Swiss accounts or man- assets under management that he hasn't declared? Um, this is something that I assume <laughs> if they're doing their job. Uh, you know, the U.S. law enforcement or the intel agencies would be able to determine. Uh, But there was no reporting on this at all. And Swiss whistleblower laws being what they are, it's very hard for, you know, anyone in the Swiss financial institution to come forward because they end up going to jail. Um, So that's a specific question that, uh, you know, I think is a burning question. I'd like to know the answer. If it turned out that President-elect Trump had uh, Swiss bank accounts that were not declared, that would present an interesting dilemma, you know, what will we do? We just say, okay, fine, Uh, no problem. You know, it was a technical foul. Um, But then, you know, if that were the case, or his family made elaborate, uh, you know, or offshore arrangements, uh, all I'm saying is that it it seems more likely that if anyone was going to have offshore bank accounts, it would be not Mitt Romney, but Donald Trump. So that's, again, a simple question. I like to start with these simple questions. Why did Putin exist? Why did Trump get his financing? And in this case, does does no Trump have any Swiss accounts? Even millennia? I mean, <laughs> uh, apparently not. Uh, so maybe someone in the world can, you know, come forward with the answer to that question.
1: Was there anything you discovered after the article was published that uh, – anything in de- developed since the article was published? Is-
2: I'd have to say, uh, I, I'll pass on that question. I've had you know, a lot of people coming forward, and you know we're, I'm still uh, interested in the questions I've raised. I have to say that this is not my favorite subject in the world. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have felt like writing and spending all the time I did writing on this subject. Uh, I have a book in process on private banking, and you know I want to get back to that. Uh, I, I'm teaching a, a, a teaching a course this term at Yale uh, on the global justice program and, you know, I'm doing a lot of things in academic, uh, in the academic domain and on the global tax justice movement. That's my calling in life. So, you know, this was a diversion. Uh, but since the, nobody, amazingly enough, nobody in the mainstream media, uh, you know, put two and two together here, I sort of felt, Hey, let's take a look at this. And, uh, You know, I don't think anybody can accuse me of being a Democrat uh, stalking horse. Uh, The article came out well after the election. I'm not a Democrat anyway, (laughs) so uh, I was, you know, I have a long background in the private sector. I was chief economist at McKinsey. I worked for Jack Welch at GE. You know, I have my own consulting firm. I had a long career in the private sector. You know, sort of, I'm not a uh, Bernie Sanders socialist, so, you know, all of these things are uh it's hard to say i'm coming at this from some jaundiced uh, political perspective or have some blinding ambition of my own um but you know i just wanted the truth to be out there
1: well i, I thank you for writing the article and uh, for my listeners where can, uh, where can they find more of your work and of course uh, your twitter handle
2: well, uh, you can Google James S. Henry. Uh, there's a Wikipedia about me, and uh, it's a little bit inaccurate and outdated. But I also have a website called GlobalHavenIndustry.com, uh, um, and uh, my Twitter handle is uh which is a little bit strange, but it's a you know you'll figure it out. <laughs> so <laughs> just just Google James S. Henry, and you'll find. Uh, I think my first article was for the. Washington Monthly back in nineteen seventy-six on calling in the big bills. And uh, finally uh, the Modi government in India has adopted this idea, it's getting around to it. But <laughs> <laughs>
1: well thank you very much, James. Oh yeah, Matt Dwyer. He's a thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. It is great to be back. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer. Go to my website, com Uh And uh, I have a Patreon on my page, so you can send me money for doing this, because I don't make anything. Um, Great. We'll be back soon.